Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Tonight, what I'd like to do is uh, walk you through some of the big ideas in Colossians that uh, Paul writes about for our spiritual growth and then land in some ideas of Colossians chapter 3. And do this again devotionally for you so that um, as you go through this and as you read through the material that I put together, you might be able to see some of the accents uh, that Paul has placed for us. Again, Colossians is about um, only Christ. So this is about having Jesus be the only person that we need to have a relationship with to get to God. We don't need special knowledge. We don't need special feasts. We don't need special holidays. In fact, Paul is going to be talking about that at the very end of Colossians 2, which I want to kind of drive this discussion to for our entire class, the end of Colossians 2, because there's something really important here about our own lives. So this is all about our relationship with Christ and how our relationship with him gives us all of the nourishment that we need in our um, spiritual lives. So um, in Colossians 2, um, starting in verse 2, is what I'd like to start with you with tonight. My purpose is that they, uh, those that are in uh, Laodicea, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you, deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Um, if you are like me, you may have a natural curiosity. Um, in my area of counseling and psychology, as you know, there's this tension in Christianity about um, how do we get better? Uh, what is the role of the mind in our lives? What is the role of genetics? Uh, if you keep up with um, the issues of the day, I do want to say this. If you want to have this information, I'd be happy to give it to you. There is a lady who is a lesbian and a researcher at Cornell University who has come out to say that same-sex Attraction is not genetic. She is the premier researcher in this area, and she herself is a militant lesbian. And she has said the research does not substantiate that this is genetic at all, and we need to stop talking about it, which is really pretty fascinating. There's a YouTube video on it, uh, which is really pretty fascinating. And um, she is saying um, that she believes that there are legitimate reasons from a secular standpoint to have same-sex marriage, but we can't be saying all the time that it's genetic and we can't help ourselves, which I thought was really fascinating because that's how we got it in the first place. Okay, so here's, here's what we notice, and I just want to say this to you because I get immersed in all those issues with the kinds of people that I deal with. Um, because I deal with addicts and I deal with people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I deal with people who have a lot of wounds from childhood. And this passage right here about how Jesus is full of, he has uh, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, really mean a lot to me from the standpoint of what does that mean in daily practice? 
What does it mean in daily practice? And so for me, here is where I have landed as I have to work in and around um, all of these fields. There are two things that I look for. Number one is where am I getting the long range view of life? From, from whom am I getting the long range view of life? And I, I decided a long time ago that the scripture gives me the shortcuts to living a healthy life that only is demonstrated over time. It might be demonstrated in a moment where something occurs, but you and I suffer from short-term memory loss about how good God is. And we need to continue to have that renewed over and over and over again. And we become like the children of Israel who have amazing experiences with God, and then we kind of forget about them. And I recognize that habit in myself because I, I just want to have my faith reaffirmed on a regular basis. And so years ago, I decided that I would take the scripture and I would mine it for those practical statements. How should I think? How should I live? How should I organize my life? And then I would, to the best of my ability, begin practicing that and watch the outcome over a number of years. And what I have found over a number of years is that science will tend to always support scripture in the interpretations of science. Now, I, I want to use the word tend because we're not really sure where we land with all this stuff. And so even when we're studying genetics right now, science does lean into um, some of these scriptural components. And the fight is not over what science says. The fight is over the interpretation of science. And so we might get evidence and we're not really sure what to do with it. But in the end, I'm only 57. I'm, I'm younger than a couple of you in here and I'm older than several of you is I have found that science leans into the word of God. And um, I'm, I'm willing to, to bank on the word of God until science demonstrates it because I've seen it over and over and over again. And I'm watching it again in this lesbian, Dr. Um, Diamond is her name, Lisa Diamond. And um, she just flat out came out and said it. And I have it up in one of my classes. I say, you need, you need to see this because this is just explosive um, about the fact that we are corrupting science to do what we want to do. And she is saying, stop doing that. And I have a great deal of respect for people like that. And so I'm looking at this idea of mystery and wisdom. And here's what I've decided. I've just kind of rambled a little bit is I really have everything that I need to lay the foundation of my life right here in my family. And I will go back and I'll ask myself over and over again, do I really believe that? And am I living it? It's kind of what we're studying in the Gospels. It's one thing to say it, but really and truly, am I fighting myself to do it? And here's why I would say that to you. I'm a pretty smart person. And so are you. You have experiences. You have viewpoints. You have training. My question is, can I be a student of Jesus and admit when I have accepted something that is different than the word of God says. Can I do that? Or do I have to say, I'm sorry, but I, the word of God is outdated. I don't want to do that. Or make peace with a bad habit. Well, the Bucklands are all angry people. Or, you know, we just cuss sometimes and let unwholesome words come out of our mouth. You know, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The word no in Greek means no, it's equal to the Spanish word nada, which means nil. It means zero. And I look at that and I go, oh, do I really believe that? Jesus is full. 
of, of, of wisdom and knowledge. And so one of the things for somebody like me who has, like you, knowledge and experience, and we get all high and mighty in our own viewpoint is, can we? And I like this about our church. We have lots of people from lots of backgrounds. And we have decided that we want to be Bible-centered here and let some of our opinions add color. But we want to really be biblical in what we know that the scripture says. And so I land there. The second thing I land on is wisdom. Lord, I need that wisdom. I need that wisdom. I need to know how I can take what I'm learning and make it come alive. And so I'm always praying, Lord, just you need to lead me. You need to help me. I really need to ask, you know, I don't understand this. I'm feeling the pressure to conform in society. How? How can I help my children process? How can I help my students process? How can I still stand up for what I believe is right when the tide turns and and people are screaming the opposite way. And I find myself right here in Colossians chapter 2 and I go back and I ask, do I really believe this? And this has become one of those um, anchor points for me because I say, yes, I do. So how am I doing um, putting things together um, to allow for that to come alive? And it says, so that you may not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. I don't, I don't necessarily need you to raise your hand, but if you've ever believed that you've been deceived by fine-sounding arguments, you know exactly what this is talking about, where we just buy something because it seems to make sense to us in some way, and then we find out later that it was wrong. And so I've decided that I really need to question all of that. And so there's sometimes a tension in me about what to do. Um, so that's that first section. Then what he's got here, starting in verse 6, all the way to the end um, are, is a big statement that simply says that your own orderliness, your own regulations, your own list of do's and don'ts and the law's do's and don'ts will not help you to be able to have the kind of life that you want if that's all you have. So for those of you in here who tend to be law keepers and legalists, this is why just going to church more doesn't change us when we need more than just going to church. This is why if you need more than a Bible study, the Bible study itself doesn't change you. Remember, the Bible study is a link to the living God. And when we lose the link and we keep the Bible study and we study the Bible more, we are still disconnected. And so what Paul is going to do now is he's just going to simply say that God comes alive in you And that these elements that are a part of our lives in and of themselves, separated from Christ, actually will end up frustrating us, which is really kind of interesting. So notice verse six. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And so this is the analogy of growth that we've been talking about, is that you want to continue to grow. You want to continue to flourish. You want to continue to ask questions. And now he's just going to list out for you some elements. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I have to admit to you that I am constantly trying to pull that out of me. I'm trying to pull out um, deceptive philosophy. I like philosophy. I like things to work. And on human tradition, I, I just am like, how helpful is that? Um, I don't want to make this a political statement, so I don't, I don't want you to hear it as that. But I look at both political parties and I ask myself, what of these are in both of those political parties? 
because I want to be able to talk about a position that honors Christ um, in a way that makes sense to people. And I think that there's enough falseness that gets salt and peppered into all kinds of things that we can just buy the whole idea without ever thinking about it. And I'm just looking at that going, ah, how, how do I live in a world <clears throat> that is this complex as a Christ follower? And can I find a group of people like you that just want to talk about that? I mean, we might disagree on some of the application, but we can disagree as we try to honor Jesus. I, I like that. I like the idea of iron sharpens iron. I like the idea of a church that wants to study and can talk so that we can just talk about these ideas with each other so that we can pull out deceptive philosophy, stuff that sounds okay, but really is not Christ-oriented and human tradition. That's where we stop thinking (coughs) and we just do things because we do them. Now, verse 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. This passage has really impacted me. I grew up in a family that took life away. And I was constantly fighting to feel satisfied. That is that I have accomplished enough to where deep down inside I belong and I have a place. And um, the way that I used to describe this to people is that I felt like there was like an emotional chasm in my life. And it was large at times. And I would feel like I didn't understand things or I didn't have as good of relationships as I wanted. And it was really hard for me to have this sense of fullness. And I view fullness as kind of being equated to well-being, relaxation, uh, peace, the peace of Christ that comes in you. And so I began to study this idea of being full, full of the spirit, full of joy, full of Christ. Jesus, who is full of God in human form, comes into us and makes us full. What in the world does that mean? Makes us full. So here's here's where I am in this massive, very abstract theological position. Here's what I think. I believe personally, now you're welcome to do anything you want to with this as I've struggled with this, is that We can be as full as we can possibly be and still want to be fuller. And I like to think of it as a thimble or a cup or a tall glass or the big gulp, if you will, is that as we get closer to Christ, it's like our capacity to take him in gets larger. And we live in a world where there's holes in the bottom of my cup and maybe a trap door sometimes. I don't know if you feel like You've you've just had something happen and it's like it opens up and then it closes and you're like, I feel like I've just had a spiritual gut punch in some way. It's like the fullness has just drained out of me and Christ is filling us back up together. This is why I tell people the closer you get to him, the bigger the effect is of sinning in your life. You feel it more deeply because you're closer to him. Is that you get more full, you get more rich, you get more in tune with him. And if something comes and punctures your cup or you yourself knock it over, you actually feel it to a greater extent. And so I've used this analogy in my own prayer life. And I have said, God, would you please fill me up as much as I am capable of being filled up? Just help me to be overflowing with joy. I have to work on that because I'm so practical that sometimes the joy leaks off of my face and I look more serious than what I really feel. Uh, Would you please fill me up with peace so that I'm not, 
I can feel it. I can experience that sense of calmness and well-being. And so I view this as kind of breathing, if you will. I think sometimes it's larger. I think sometimes it's smaller. And I'm constantly saying, would you just keep me filled for what I need? And then sometimes this is where daily manna comes in. I just simply ask for what I need today. I know my cup is low. I know that I don't feel very filled up. I, I don't feel very wise or I don't, I don't feel very rested or I feel like I'm on edge in some way. And to me, that means that I'm not feeling this sense of fullness, this sense of well-being. And I'll just simply say, would you just put into my cup what I need today? And would you let it stay? And I will pray to get through difficult times. Kids in the hospital, bad news from a good friend concern that I have when I, when I get information as an elder about somebody who I love and care about that's got a devastating illness. Um, when there's anxiety around us. I mean, sometimes I turn off the news because it takes my cup and it puts holes in it. I don't know if that happens to you very much, but I look at that and go, okay, I need to shut this down because it's having a bigger impact on me and I'm having a sense of upsetness. There is a greater sense of anxiety today globally um, than what we have measured before, and especially in the United States. I'm like, I need to shut it down because when I begin to feel that sense of tumultuousness, North Korea and China and the Russian connection and what's going on with all the things that I just, normally I'm okay with that. But there are some days I have more holes in the bottom and I feel more empty. And I go, Lord, you just need to help fill me up. And I will pray for fullness. This is this mystical kind of thing. And there are times that I just pull, pull away and I just try to um, allow for the Lord to minister to me because here's where we're going. What happens after this is statements about our faith in Christ. And so what he's saying is you're full. And then in verse 11, you, in him you were circumcised, the putting off of your flesh, your sinful nature, your sinful habits. And of course, the idea of circumcision there is they were cut away from you. That's the typology, of course, with circumcision, is that you were, you were, um, you were surgically changed spiritually by God. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And so what you're seeing here is a typology again. You're seeing the typology of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus that is played out in baptism, which is that immersion baptism, which is the the typology of that, where God is simply saying, don't forget what I've done for you. Don't, don't forget this. Now, of course, God doesn't need baptism to be doing that because I think he cuts it off in our prayers and, you know, we don't have to get rebaptized all over again. But what he's simply saying here for these Christians was don't forget what happened to you when you were um, immersed into Christ. And then he says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. When you came to him empty, broken, cracked and hurt. God looked at you and he said, I'm going to change all of that. I'm going to make you come alive for me. And I'm going to give you a purpose. I'm going to give you a hope. And I'm going to remove from you the kinds of things that are harming you. This is the, the description of transformation right here. This is it in spiritual salvation terms, but also is what happens when we ask God to forgive us of our sins. So when you are frustrated and you're like, Lord, I've done it again and I'm just really frustrated with this and I need to move forward and I have these sin habits and I, 
I need you to help me. God goes, I can do something with that. I can make you come alive. I can make this change in your life. And these spiritual formation activities are designed to keep you in line with forgiveness and humility. Coming back to this idea where God can make you alive with Christ. And notice this. He forgave us our sins, canceled the written code that was against us, took it away, nailing it to the cross, disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle triumphing over them by the cross. That's what we have just celebrated. This is why I did my chaplet. I want to feel grateful for this. I don't know about you. I've been a Christian. I grew up in the church. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I'm okay with all of that. But familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds casualness. And I want this right here, like verse 14 and 15, to be the song of a grateful heart. That's why I did the chaplet that I gave to you. I felt like I didn't have that. I was just not going through the motions, but I wasn't accenting the right kind of appreciation that I wanted to have for Christ. Um, Therefore, now starting in verse 16, um, he begins talking to you about the rules and the regulations. Notice, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to the festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Um, I want to step on some of our spiritual toes, please. Um, hear what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't let anybody judge you by how often you come to church or if you're in a small group or what church you actually go to. Don't, uh, don't judge by whether or not you celebrate Christmas more with Santa Claus or with Jesus. Don't let people judge you because the power is not in all of those activities. That's what he's saying. If you think it is, if, if you think that the power is just in that, you're going to be really, really empty. Then he goes on to this. He said, these are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I want to talk to you a little bit about 17. This has really caught my imagination. Um, Before age 40, you tend to look back on your life and evaluate how well you're doing. From age 40 on, you tend to look at your death date. And you begin to think, what what time do I have left? And what do I want to do with that time that I have left? And what Paul is doing now, I've passed that threshold 17 years ago. (laughs) I like, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking this word reality is the word substance. What's going on is you have shadow and substance is what Paul is saying. And what he's saying is, is that there are these spiritual realities that are out there. There there are things that happen in church. There are things that happen in your spiritual activities But you need to recognize that the reality, the person, the Jesus, casts a shadow into that. And you want to make sure that you relate to Jesus himself. Not not the things that could actually become empty and, and shadowy, if you will. And I like that because I keep asking myself, I'm an elder at Christ Church. I could go on autopilot pretty easy. If you've been a Christian for a really long time, you can go on autopilot. And at the end of autopilot, you you always crash. You feel empty. You feel frustrated. You don't feel power. And, and what happens is, is that we begin to believe that my service is my worship. It is not. Worship is worship. That I can just go through what my spiritual activities are. And in the end, I will be able to be really spiritually mature. So I don't want to step on any toes. I mean, I know people that have had this happen. You know any ministers that were not successful in their ministry? for one reason or another, of all the people that should be successful, it should be ministers. 
but it is the living out of ministerial duties that actually creates more holes in you because it's hard to live in a broken world with all the demands that are coming at you. And what, what Paul is saying here is this, please don't let your service, please don't let your coming to church, please don't let your Bible study, please don't let your celebrations take the place of actually relating to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? There are ways to connect. So here's what I do. I walk into church and I don't feel connected. And what I do is I, I immediately say, Lord, I don't feel connected today. I must be really distracted. Would you find a way to pull me in? Would you find a way to reach me and pull me in? That might be by a song. It might be by a melody, you know, words or a melody. It might be by a sermon. It might just be that I run across one of you and we have one of those cool conversations and I'm able to get connected. Um, He knows how I can get connected. And so I walk in and I look at that and I go, for whatever reason, I'm over here in the shadow land. And I want to be over here with the real connection. And I can't control that. And what I can do is respond to it in a really good way. And so I'll just simply ask the Lord to connect me in that way so that I have a sense about what is truly substance. And this, um, the New International translates that as reality. Then he says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great details and talks about all that sort of stuff. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Here's what he's saying here is we can take our own faith and just make it a system of rules. So let me give you something that is incredibly important in spiritual growth. The process that you take people through is more important than just the method. So if you say, I don't want you to watch R-rated movies, we had that rule with our kids. I mean, I don't think elementary school kids should be seeing R-rated movies. You, you can't do that until you are older. Here's why. Here's the process that I want to take you through. Here's what R-rated movies are like. Here's what they teach you. Here's, here's the kind of experiences that you can have. And I want you to be older before you experience that. The time will come when you might be able to process that where you're at a friend's house or you might see something and you can actually process that a little bit better. And then there are probably some R-rated movies you don't even want to ever see because they're so against what God would want us to do that why would you want to put those in your minds? You know what my kids said? Okay. And then they were older and they started having their friends watch R-rated movies. And they said to me, Dad, my friends who are our age, and some of them were in Christian families, we're watching R-rated movies at 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And, and I said, no, I don't. So here's the deal. If you can convince me to watch an R-rated movie, to evaluate it, I will decide for you after I watch it whether or not I think that it would be something that you could watch. And then we'll watch it together. They got me to evaluate no movies. I'm like, no. I, you, you have to convince me. That And I said, go, go online and take a look at some of these evaluative sites. And I want you to read for me all of the things that are in that movie, down to how many F words are spoken, how many rape scenes are there, how many people die and blow up and all that. And I just looked at them and I said, tell me, why should I let you watch that? I, I don't want to watch that. I remember um, when one of the movies came out, the guy with the mask, I forget the name right now. You might remember that the white mask that is in London. <sighs> What's the name? No, no, no. It wasn't a horror movie. It was an R-rated movie. I'm trying to remember the name of it. But it was like a dystopia. V for Vendetta. Yeah, V for Vendetta came out. And my kids were all like, their friends are all watching it and everything. And, and I had them read the first, 
the first line. And the first line is a gang rape scene. And I said, okay, you need to stop. I said, I want you to know something about your father that I have never told you. I work with victims who have been gang raped. That is not, that is, that is not an entertainment scene for me. I can't watch that. And so I'm going to tell you no. Because I have been on the other side of that experience with people who have had it. And they looked at me and their eyes got really big. I said, you just need to know that about me is I can't watch victimization as though it's entertainment. This is the process. This is what opens up the eyes to people is to go, oh, I didn't really realize that. Oh, no, I see faces. I remember. I mean, even now I remember a story of somebody who came to Cooks and Hills who was victimized in thunderstorms. So her screams could not be heard. I mean, I'm like, I don't want that. And I don't want you to have to deal with that right now. Now, when you're older, you may want to look at that. And I think some of them have watched that scene and they, they don't react the same way, but they had to be older to be able to do that. <clears throat> the process is really incredibly important. The rules themselves don't really teach you what to do. They teach you what not to do. Here's something that scared me with my kids and, and my eldership. This is one of the reasons I try to teach the way that I do, even with teenagers, is I tell them what I want them to do rather than to just not do something. If I tell them not to do something, I also want to tell them what to do instead. Is that a lot of my Christian friends who were having children a little bit older than we were, they were graduating from high school, and then they were, this was our movie policy, is that they began watching all the movies that they were not allowed to watch. All of them. In fact, one guy actually boasted that he went and watched all the movies that his parents wouldn't let him watch. He said, I wish I didn't see some of those, but I watched them all because they said I couldn't. There is something in us that when there is just a rule, but not a process, we want to break it. (laughs) It's like, what is that in us? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Hey, if you turn Christianity into a bunch of rules, your children will want to break them all. You may want to break them too, because they won't make sense. They won't make sense because you haven't processed them. You haven't connected them to the lawgiver. Uh, There's a book called Right and Wrong by Josh McDowell. And he went out into the malls of America and he interviewed teenagers. And he asked them this question or these these kinds of questions or his crew did. Is it wrong to lie? Without a doubt, everybody said yes. And then he would their person would ask, well, why is it wrong to lie? Well, it hurts people's feelings and it makes you untrustworthy. Guess what the next question was? Do you lie? The bulk of them said, yes, I do. Do you think that it's a problem for you to lie? Oh, no, no, it's okay for me to lie, but it's not okay for other people to lie. What about cheating on a test? Oh, oh, wrong, 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 wrong. Why do you, why do you not cheat? Well, because it's not your own work and it's not fair. And, you know, somebody could get a really good grade. Do you ever cheat? Yeah. Why do you cheat? Because I didn't study and I deserve to cheat. Well, what about stealing, shoplifting? Oh, man, shoplifting is wrong. Is it always wrong? Absolutely. You should always pay for stuff. Do you, have you ever shoplifted? Mm-hmm, yeah. Why? Because I wanted it. I didn't have the money. Here's what they found in the research. This was very fascinating. This really impacted my whole work with people. What they found was that if you're not attached to the lawgiver, you will break the law every time. If you're not attached, if you have not absorbed the value of the lawgiver, 
If you don't love your mom and dad, if, if you're fighting them, this is why teenagers will actually leave church is because they know that they could strike a blow to their mom and dad. It's not so much that they're mad at God, but they're mad at mom and dad. And so I'll do the exact opposite from what you told me to do because I'm mad at you and I know you don't like this. Well, guess what we do with God? When we're mad at him, we'll do the exact opposite of what he wants us to do too. And it means that you're not attached in that moment because a healthy attached person doesn't act that way to the person who he or she loves. Does that make sense to you? That's what Paul's talking about. Don't just turn Christianity into a bunch of rules and regulations. This now comes, we're going to kind of land the plane in the heart of this class. The reason that the whole class is about how do you connect with Christ is that you will find that there will be areas of your life that you will hold on to if you don't really truly love him in that area as deeply as you want to. And so if you were to come to me and say, you know, I just am really struggling with this. My question for you is what hinders you from being attached in that area? Why is the sin better than the Savior? What, what, is, what is it about that that feels good in the moment that overrides the love of the Savior? And this is what Paul is saying is you can just completely fall apart. Because notice the very last thing that he says. This one really caught my attention. Um, he says in verse 23, such regulations as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't do all these stuff. And, and I have a bunch of those rules, by the way. I do. But I, I've tried to explain this to my kids. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Oh, they, they look really good. So if you've come out of a legalistic church, it looks very righteous to dress a certain way, to eat certain kind of foods, avoid other things, go to certain places. It, it seems very godly. Okay, Paul is now really honing in that if all we have is rules, I want you to hear that. It's one thing to do it out of an expression of love. It's another thing to do it because it's just a rule. He says this, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but, notice this, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rules by themselves cannot stand up to the desire to have pleasure. Pleasure, do what you want pleasure. Allow for yourself to have a sense of momentary filledness by drinking and get the buzz, which ultimately can take you down a path. Um, the, the sexual dysfunction of our entire culture, the word sensual has to do with the word bodily pleasures because that's the fastest way for us to get a bang for a buck to somehow feel better is to alter our chemicals and have pleasure. Now, your brain is a pleasure monger. It wants to feel good all the time. And what Paul is simply saying here is Christ, there, there's a way to do this, but just having rules is not it. And this, this connection is what's really, really important. So he starts chapter three with the solution. Chapter three with the solution. Now you'll notice this is a super familiar passage, three verse one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right end of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ, uh, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the engine of connection right here. This is the engine to be attached to Christ. This is the way that you can have rules that make sense with the process. This is where you get to know the rule keeper and how amazing God actually is. If you set your mind and your heart on Christ, who is the, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in, in who 
um, took away your alienation. The, the God who became a human and actually looked at you in your brokenness and he said, I will give you life. If you get to know that person and can stay close to him, then your life is going to be absolutely amazing. And you do it by setting your mind. Isn't that interesting? You do it by focusing. Now, let me talk to you just a tad bit. We've talked about this, just about brain research. And then I'm going to show you the list of do's and don'ts that come right after this, which is really kind of interesting. Here's, here's, here's what he says. <clears throat> your setting your mind takes your brain and through willpower and by concentrated thinking, you begin to create connections in your mind that actually bring power from God into your life. Because as you are connecting on memory, which we've talked about, and the Bible and about um, using the scripture and about the Lectio Divina and what, what it means. As you're connecting in that way, what's happening is that God is activating you and he is doing more than just having a conversation in your mind with a newspaper. He's actually living and he's active. And what he's doing is he's creating stronger connections with you that you can remember throughout the day. This is your daily manna. This is what you're putting in your cup to fill it up. And if your cup is like mine, you can go a day or two sometimes and then your cup is pretty empty if you have a big full life. And you have to keep filling it up or keep, keep putting in this manna um, or else you might be tempted to just kind of do your own thing. And so what Paul is saying here is that this, ide- this, this taking of a priority and focusing on it is actually what keeps your attachment going. That's what this class is about. You purposefully saying, I want to be attached. And I, I can be attached by these three ways, these five ways, so that I always have something that I'm interested in. The reason that you go with your strengths is that there will be some days that you will feel empty and alone and your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and they're coming down. And what God is simply saying to you is, I know you will have those days, but these spiritual disciplines, if you will, these connection points are so meaningful to you that you can actually begin setting your mind on the truth of who you know that I am. And I can begin to make a connection to you, which is why when I show up at church and I'm disconnected, I'm not scared. Because he can make a connection by any number of means. He can make a connection when I just walk outside and I breathe the air. Something about the air that there's, sometimes it smells in such a way that I'm snapped back to something spiritual, which is really weird. Uh, there's a, there are people that I love to see. I mean, it's just it's an amazing thing that he can do. And what he says is, come to me and set your mind and I will take you the rest of the way. It might, might take you a while to get there, but he'll take you the rest of the way. Then he says to you, now, there are rules in every healthy relationship. Would you agree with me? There are rules. There are do's and don'ts in every relationship. Like one of those that I learned the hard way is don't slug your wife. Um, one of the ways that we would show that we liked each other in the family uh, I grew up with four brothers, is that we would pounce on each other and we would wrestle and we would just hit each other. Um, you know, they walk by and we'd slug each other. My wife did not like that. I'm not sure why. I'm like, I also love sarcasm. So if somebody walked by and they didn't look like they were all completely put together, you would make some sarcastic comment about that. My wife didn't like sarcastic comments that she wasn't completely put together. Or she would say to me, 
something like, yeah, surprised about it. She would say something like, oh, I just feel really fat today. Do you think I'm fat? And I just look at her and go, well, of course. Yeah, there's just more to love. And she's like, blah! And I'm like, what did I do wrong? I have no idea what I did wrong. Because you set me up to love you with sarcasm. Okay? So there are healthy ways of relating and unhealthy ways of relating that every relationship has. And to just be honest with you, I started underwater knowing how to relate to women because I had no sisters and my mom was really great about things. But, you know, we didn't live in the most functional household. And so when I got married, I began to find out all the little Buckland things that I did that wouldn't fit into the right category that I can laugh at right now. And I just look at that and I go, yeah, I'm still tempted to say those things because it still lives in me, which is really bad. I can't believe I just admitted that. But notice verse five, put to death. Therefore, every relationship has components you don't do because you love the person. That's what these lists are. Every list of don't is a list of healthiness that shows you love God. Every, every don't, every, every command, thou shalt not, is a way that you can say to God, God is like my spouse. And my spouse has idiosyncrasies. There are um, particular things that my spouse likes that maybe other spouses don't like. There are particular things God likes that maybe other gods don't care about. Uh, but he cares about them. And I want to learn what those are because I'm in this relationship and my behavior begins to automatically shift as I love that person. Does that make sense to you? I had to learn how to do this with each of my kids. Is each of my children was a little bit different and we had global rules and then we had very particular rules for each one of them that was meaningful to them about how they were to be loved. These are particular rules about what not to do. Then you'll notice verse 12. Therefore, as God's Chosen people, holy and dearly love, clothe yourselves. Start doing these instead. And this is the fastest way to begin seeing the wisdom of God. Stop doing certain things. Start doing other things. Scour the scripture. Find out how God leans into life. What are are the ways that he says, I really want to bless you? And then follow that. Even if it doesn't make sense to you, follow it. Some lessons are learned only by living them. You need to make a list of what you have learned only by living it. Because people told you not to, not to, not to. But when you did it and did it and did it, you began to see the wisdom of it. Or maybe you wondered, why is this so important? Then you started doing it and it all is all of a sudden dawned on you. Some lessons are only learned by living it. The second one is some lessons are learned early by mentally agreeing and then just acting on it. And so we learn by both of those. And what what, uh, God is landing the plane here is to simply say, look, I know. I know that I'm asking you to trust me. I want to give you life. I don't want you just to have a series of rules and regulations. I want you to have a sense that you can rise above your own desire to have your own way, which is that sensuality. And in order to do that, there are two big things that I need for you to do. Number one is you need to choose me every single day. Choose me. And you need to, in your own mind, in your own heart, say, Lord, I am picking you. Set your heart, set your mind on me and then admit to me where you cannot do that. Admit to me and then keep away from certain things and make sure that you're doing other things. So when you when you do what you shouldn't do, you're repentant as fast as you can and you begin to move forward. 
And you find, and I would say this, you find a group of people that understands this. You go through it with them in whatever way that that you possibly can. And know that we are all doing the very same thing all the time. The very same thing all the time. And as a result, you will change. You will change. There's a mystery here. And you will change. And you'll be a person who does have rules. But you will know the lawgiver. You'll know the rule keeper. And, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, my commandments are not. You can finish it, right? They're not what? Burdensome. When you love me, my commands are not burdensome. Why? Is it burdensome for me to not take the bait for my wife anymore when she says, you know, I just feel like I'm fat. It's not burdensome anymore. Or if she comes home and she has a rough day and she's just like needs to spout off for a little bit. I don't need to correct her. I don't need to say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be talking like that about those people. I just listen and I say, well, how can I be helpful? It's not burdensome to lean into a relationship that you love. And so what you're really looking at now is how do your spiritual formation experiences become ways that you connect with God so your relationship is a free-flowing, loving relationship that is not burdensome. That's cool. That's really what this class is about. You figuring that out. And using Colossians as a template, you have everything in its big idea form that Paul is saying, hey, watch out for these things and move forward in the right way. So um, it is like 10 to 8, and I want to um, give you an opportunity to kind of wrap up anything that you've heard tonight that you liked, as well as to thank your group for sitting with you. I did not. Scott, could you find me a piece of paper? I need to get um, emails from people so I can link them with the Google file. I forgot to bring that in my own I thought I was already, but I can't remember everything that I want to do until I want to do it again. Um, if you would like to have the entire file uh, with PowerPoints and all the handouts electronically done. If you um, just put it out beside your name. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll take a picture of it tonight. Yeah, that'd be great. If you want to do that, I'd be happy to connect you to a Google Drive. And I'll keep a master so that if one of you accidentally gets in there and like wipes it all out by, you know... Um, Cutting it rather than copying it, you know, that's cool. I'll just put it all back in there. So that'll be great. So you don't have to worry about it if something happens. But I'd be more than happy to share any of this with you that you would really like to have. And um, um, thank you for putting up with me this semester and uh, going through this experience. Let's, let's pray and I'll let you kind of wrap up and then you can just kind of drift away as usual um, as you need to tonight. Lord, thank you so much for this class. For these people, my brothers and sisters, we are all trying to do the same thing. And we pray, Lord, that you will bless us and guide us and direct us to really lean into you, to be able to not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments and by human philosophies and human traditions, that you would allow for us to see how Christ really is um, full of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom, how we do have to have healthy rules, but we need to be connected to the lawgiver. We need to be connected to you so that the rules come alive as statements of our love and our affection that are not burdensome. And Lord, I want to pray specifically that we can go through our lives and keep getting connected with you, especially at those times where we do feel more separated. Help us, Lord, to have that experience that we might in turn help other people to have it as well. Give us wisdom and grace And keep some of these friendships going that have formed in this class. In such a big church, Lord, we thank you um, that we can get to know um, each other more personally. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.